Good morning. If you uh, drive by the building on any random Thursday morning at 9 o'clock, you're going to see a lot of cars packed in the parking lot, and you might wonder what is going on. And I just want to give you a word of caution before you go busting in the building. Because what you're going to find behind those doors is a big group of ugly guys sitting around, drinking coffee, eating donuts, and telling jokes. And I don't want you to be taken aback. Now, why do, why do I share this with you? One of the things that I think is important is, is talking to you all about the things that are happening here at Oldham Lane. You know, I stand up all the time and I talk about the importance of Christian community. And this is one of those examples where I see that happening in such a powerful way. We have this group of guys coming together each week for accountability, to encourage one another. They use this as a springboard to serve the congregation in various areas. If you show up, you might even get a mediocre joke from Travis Smith. So anyway, they got that to look forward to. We are, we are thankful for, for all of you who prioritize Christian community this way. That is so powerful and an important part of some of the wonderful kingdom activities that are happening here at Oldham Lane. You know, it's holiday season, and many of you have, have or have had guests come into your home over the last week. So I have a question for you. What do you do to your home when you are getting ready for a special guest? Now, I don't want to know what it's like for you all, but for me growing up, that was quite a busy time getting everything ready. We had to tidy up our rooms, we had to clean the bathrooms, which was probably and still is my least favorite part of having a guest come over. Seems like we ran all over the house, and the goal was to make it look like no one lived there before people came over. Does anyone know what that feels like? I was doing some research the other day on all the preparation that went into hosting the Olympics. So you think that getting your house ready for guests is a big deal. You should try getting a whole city ready for that type of guest. They have the schedule planned 10 years out, and that gives them time, I mean, not just to plan. They build infrastructure. They have to hire people. They have to train people. They have to get all of these plans in place for this big event that's going to be happening. It's a really big deal. Some of the planning is visible. Some of the planning, of course, isn't visible, and it happens behind the scene. But one thing we can be confident of, for events of that magnitude, a lot of planning goes into it. If we put that much work into preparing for a house guest, or maybe a country puts that much work into preparing for the Olympics, it shouldn't surprise us that God would put an enormous amount of effort into preparing for Jesus to enter the world. This morning, we're going to begin a five-week series entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told, and we're going to look at the events leading up to and including the birth of Christ the way that Luke told it in the first two chapters of his gospel. This morning, we're going to start at the very beginning with verses 1 through 25, so I hope that you'll open your Bibles there, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, and we're going to read that together as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, 
king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended... He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, the first question I want to ask ourselves is one of practicality, and it's simply this What do we find in the text? What what is here? And I want to begin by by simply unwrapping a little bit about what we read. There are several different things that these verses tell me about how God prepared for the preparer, John the Baptist. The first thing that we learn about is Zechariah and Elizabeth. We learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth, first and foremost, were blameless before God. But the text also tells us that they were old and that they had been unable to have children. Now, this was quite an interesting situation for them to find themselves in. We, we operate under different presuppositions than maybe they did. So we hear of her being barren, and we think of a lot of scientific reasons that they would have been unable to have children. But for them, they would have assumed something different. When they saw barrenness, there was an assumption of some sort of hidden sin, something from God that was preventing them from being able to have children. You know, I've tried to think of a a modern-day parallel to help us wrap our minds around kind of the the type of judgment they would have jumped to. 
You know, I think we have a similar thought process with material things, with possessions. Let me explain what I mean. If, if we see someone who maybe doesn't have a lot, um, someone who we might consider poor in relation to ourselves, we tend to view them in a certain way. We probably might think of them as irresponsible and lazy. Of course, when we see someone who's rich in relation to ourselves, who has more, we think just the opposite. We view them as wise and responsible and a hard worker. Now, we all know that that's not necessarily true. In fact, most of the line, most of the time, it, it isn't true at all. Um, it might be in a handful of situations, but the reality is often the things that we think don't reflect the truth behind the situation. And the same type of thing would have been happening in the minds of the people here as they looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke wants us to be sure that we understand this is not what was going on. That we understand that God had done this on purpose and that things were not as they might appear in the moment. The point of this story and this introduction at the beginning is not that barrenness is a curse or that God will relieve barrenness from those who love and follow him. Not at all. It's to show how God puts his glory on display by using situations like this. You know, I can't help but wonder, can't help but wonder what sort of grumblings would have gone on behind the back of this devout couple. What sort of questions might have been asked about him? Y'all know how we do that, how we kind of chat about people when we think certain things. You've probably received some of it. You've probably done some of it. I wonder who stood up for Elizabeth and Zechariah, and I wonder who might have slandered them behind their back. I can't help but wonder what the other priest would have thought when Zechariah was chosen by Lot. You know, scholars estimate there were around 18,000 priests during this time. This certainly would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. He never would have gotten to burn this incense before, and he would never get to burn it again. And as his lot was chosen, I wonder what all the others were thinking. But him, the one whose wife is barren, Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to wonder that as we step into this story. He wants us to feel this tension because when we see the tension, we tend to see at the beginning of a story, we tend to see the glory of the story in a different light at the end of the tunnel. As we move on, we also see an announcement is made, a big announcement. We're given some facts about what's going to happen. Gabriel tells John, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him, I'm sorry, Gabriel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice, for he will be great before the Lord. He tells him that he'll be set apart, that he'll be filled with the Spirit even before birth. So many wonderful things were told to Zechariah about this child, but we also learn why. And I think this is even more glorious. He says that this is going to prepare a people for the Lord. It's going to turn the children back to God and the hearts of the fathers towards their children and turn the disobedient towards wisdom. He's going to preach in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In other words, John is going to do something that the Jews had been anticipating and waiting for. He's going to share a, a powerful message and play an important role in preparing the people for what's going to come next. Now, we're not told here in the first 25 verses exactly the specifics of what he's preparing them for. Okay? 
But I think that it's fair to assume that they would have known, given, the, given all of the anticipation that he was talking about the Messiah. It's interesting in the face of this announcement that the next thing we learn about is Zechariah's doubt. You would think Zechariah wouldn't know better, wouldn't you? I mean, he was a priest, and just like you and me, he would have grown up hearing the same stories told from the Old Testament, from the history of Israel that all of us, many of us, have known since birth. He would have known the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17 through 21. He knew the stories of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 25, where they had Esau and Jacob. And Jacob and Rachel when they had Joseph, and Elkanah and Hannah when they had Samuel, and Manoah and his wife when they had Samson. He would have known all of these stories, but while we may may know the facts of God's past actions, when we're in the moment, when we're struggling with our very present experiences of difficulty, we often fail to remember them. Is that familiar to you? It's in the middle of Zacharias' doubt that we learn who he is actually talking to. It's the angel Gabriel. Now, the appearance of the angel Gabriel is a really big deal. In the text, Gabriel points out that he stands in the presence of God. Gabriel, in fact, is one of two named angels in Scripture, and his appearance is always one that brings good news. We read of him in Daniel, and that's what Zechariah would have thought of when he heard his name. And then we read of him in this instance, and we're going to see him next week. He's going to introduce himself to Mary. Gabriel, in the face of Zacharias's doubt, gives him a punishment, a punishment that's going to serve three purposes. It's going to instill in confidence in Zechariah that his words are true. It's going to keep the details of this uh, revelation a secret until the time was ready. And it's going to show the people who also would have likely doubted that God was genuinely working. So Zacharias leaves. He's unable to speak. It causes the people to wonder what sort of a thing happened to him, what sort of a vision he saw while he was there in the temple. And we find that his voice doesn't return until John is born. This leaves us with just the last few verses of the text where we see God's faithfulness. John goes home. Things happen as declared, and we hear a little bit from Elizabeth who hid for five months, and then finally she comes out of hiding with this bold proclamation Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, I'm not sure how much Elizabeth knew about Gabriel's message. I don't know how much Zachariah was able to tell her. The text tells us he signed. You'd think after five months he'd get pretty good at signing. But also he's a guy and we're terrible communicators. So maybe he didn't tell her anything about what was happening. But she certainly knew her body and she certainly knew that a miracle had happened. She praised God for it. So as I step back and as I look at the big picture of the text, as I start to piece all of these facts together, I really see two converging timelines. I see the timeline of a barren couple who had lived their entire life in devotion to God under the scrutiny of society around them, wondering why God had withheld his blessing from them. And then I see the timeline of an almighty God 
who had been working since the beginning of time to redeem a people to himself and who happened to choose this time and this place to bring about a massive moment of change. The very personal, intimate, and narrow timeline of a family who followed God with a lot of unanswered questions. Coupled with this broad and and sweeping and ultimate timeline of a God who loved his people and gave them every possible reason to believe and pursue him. So why do we have this passage and what is here that we need to know? For some reason, Luke thought it was important to back up and include this story. Um... You know, Luke tells us in the first five verses that he's going to present a historical account. And so this, this was obviously a historical thing that happened that people remembered, and he thought it was important to tell us about it. There were eyewitnesses that had seen this happen, and, and wonder was instilled in their hearts. But even though it was maybe not the central story, even though it was the opening of a second act, John didn't think it wanted to be missed. And I think there's more than just history at play here. I think there's more going on that we need to see. I think we get a glimpse into two important and timeless and pertinent arenas. The individual heart of a member of God's family, what it looks like to struggle and what it feels like to be blessed, and the overarching scope of God's plan and how he uses his people to accomplish his goals. As we start to see our story and our history, we start to see how God meshes our individual lives with his. You know, God takes our blessings and our curses and our wins and our losses and our failures and our sin and our wins and our moral victories, and and he crafts a story out of them. God's like an artist who uses the collective lives of believers. I would even say the lives of non-believers And he gathers them together and he uses them as the media with which he's going to create a masterpiece. So I want to start by zeroing in on your story. What's his plan for you? You know, Scripture reveals pretty clearly what his plan is for all of us. But perhaps there's some here this morning who haven't heard it. Perhaps there's some here this morning who need to be reminded of it. And so I'm going to read four different passages I'm going to let God speak for himself. In Acts 17, 24 through 27, Scripture tells us this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, we read that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God wants you to know him. God wants you to be saved and to know the truth. God does not desire that you would perish, but that you would repent. And God has prepared a holy city, a place where he will one day dwell among his people and he will be their God and there will be no more pain or suffering or heartache where all things will be made new and he wants you to be there. That's his plan. Now, we can know his plan all day long, but believing is a different issue. Do you believe him when he says these things? Zechariah was condemned by Gabriel for disbelieving this message. And why? Well, Gabriel seemed to think it was important to point out that he stands in the presence of God. Gabriel's message was delivered from the mouth of God. You know, the words of this book, as we've studied over the last couple of weeks, represent the very breath of God. When we read them, it's as if we stand in his presence. When he says he puts you in this place at this time so that you would seek him and find him and he's close to you, do you believe him? Because those words came from the presence of God. When he says he desires your salvation and that you would know the truth, do you believe him? Because those words come from the presence of God. When he says he does not want you to perish but to repent, do you believe him? Because those words come from the presence of God. When he says that there is a day coming when he will live with you and you won't hurt and all things will be made new, do you believe him? Because those words come from the presence of God. We need to be careful not to scoff or undermine the power and plan of God because of biology or nature or society, our circumstances, or even our very self. You know, we all struggle with disbelief at times, and I think the reason is that we only see a partial picture, an incomplete painting. We see the mess that is happening in our lives and around us, and it's easy to start to wonder, what is God doing? Does he really have a plan? You know, everyone's story is unique. Samuel knew from childhood where his lot would lie, but his mother Hannah agonized over her barrenness for years. Elizabeth conceived when she was old. She wrestled with that for a long time, but her cousin Mary conceived as a young virgin. We're going to learn about that next week. We see stories of people who, for all practical purposes, had it pretty good. And stories of people who suffer tremendously, some with no relief on this side of eternity. It can be so easy to look at others and compare your story with theirs, but we should be careful. Because God appears to operate in unique ways with every situation. Things may not be like you want or like you dream or like you think that they should be. But this does not mean God is not working. 
It very likely means the opposite. Often the process of preparation is painful. Often we see in Scripture that suffering and difficulty and and lack of clarity are the predecessors of wonderful things. In fact, for every single one of us, despite the ups and downs of this life, we can rest assured that glory awaits. We read this passage on Wednesday night. I want to read it again. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. The text says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't lose heart because God has some very personal plans for you. And he is preparing you for something great if only you will let him. Now, we need to pause for just a moment because it can be easy to zero in so much on our personal story that we fail to see how we fit into the big picture. Remember, there are two storylines here. The next question we have to ask is not what is his plan for you, what is his plan? You know, we often have a very individualistic view which can cause us to miss some really important things, and this isn't a new thing. In fact, even in today's text, when I look at Elizabeth's response in Luke 125, I see a little bit of my own heart. God has stepped in and he's made this powerful declaration of his plan, and what does Elizabeth see? She sees this tiny piece that impacted her personally. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people, is what Elizabeth says. That's not the reason God did this, was it? This wasn't about Elizabeth. This was about something much bigger, wasn't it? Well, yes and no. I look back in verses 13 and 14, and I see in the text that Gabriel himself says, your prayer has been answered. You will have joy and gladness. God did deliver them with joy and gladness, and he took away her approach from among the people. That is true. There are wonderful personal blessings to following Christ. But if we stop at what he's done for us, we stop short. If this was all that Elizabeth ever saw, she would have missed a much larger blessing at work. So my question for you is this, how do you fit into his master plan? You know, his master plan in the text was to bring John into the world and prepare a people to receive Christ. And this benefit to Elizabeth, it was a a perk. Your joy and your hope and your purpose and your belonging and your eternal salvation, those are Wonderful, wonderful things that have happened to you, but they are not the central storyline. What's the central storyline? What's the master plan? That the glory of God would be put on display to all creation and that creation would be restored to perfection and you would be part of it. That's the only storyline worth contributing to. Not your own story, not someone else's story, but this one, God's story. May we embrace the blessings of God in our lives, but may we never lose sight of the master plan. And may we submit ourselves to whatever role he might have us play. So what does this mean for you, very quickly? First of all, it means that you serve 
even when you don't feel like it or understand what is happening. It means you believe, even when it doesn't seem possible or make sense. And it means that you hope, even when the promises seem far away. Scripture tells us what he's doing. It tells us where this is going. It tells us where we will be, and there is nothing. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing that can thwart the plans of God. Will we be a people prepared? If you're unprepared, today is the day to change that. It may be that God is working this very morning to prepare you. So I want to ask, are you listening? Do you believe? If there are any needs this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.